Well, if you have a Bible, um, you can open your Bible to Revelation chapter number one. Go to the very last book of the book, and you will find Revelation chapter number one. Uh, in case you're new tonight or, or hadn't been here in a long time, either way, uh, we are typically on Wednesday nights, we spend time looking through whatever it is we're reading uh, in our Bible reading plan together as a church. We'll take a segment of that reading from that week, and we'll spend some time uh, studying that a little bit together on Wednesday nights. And so uh, we have recently uh, finished several writings by the Apostle John. We read the Gospel of John. We read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've also recently read uh, Jude, which is considered to be uh, the half-brother of Jesus, who's mentioned in the Gospel in case you're wondering about the author of Jude. As of this week, however, if you are reading with us in the Bible reading plan, we have begun to read the book of Revelation. Makes sense that we would read it now uh, versus the end of the year, mainly because we're reading all of uh, John's writings right now. So if you hold to a traditional view of the author of uh, Revelation, then it would make more sense on why we're reading it now. Now, of course, you probably know this, but this book is extremely unique from all other writings in the Bible. If you aren't sure about that, then hopefully you are reading it with us right now and you will discover that it is extremely uh, unique from all the other writings in the Bible. Its pages are filled with writings that are fascinating. They leave us with questions. They leave us with mystery. They leave us with wonder. It's no surprise why so many people are interested in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I don't think there is any particular study that is requested by more groups of people than when are we going to study the book of Revelation. Now, I think of this similar to other writings or other movies that fit the category of mystery or wonder or excitement or fascination. I've got a few that are particularly uh, um, good to me. This might be J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I don't know if any of you are Lord of the Rings fan, but this book is about events that never took place. I don't know if you know that. If you're in the uh, reality of trying to live out The Lord of the Rings, I hate to burst your bubble, uh, but those events never took place. It's mere fantasy. However, we're still very captured by it. This could be George Lucas's Star Wars. Any Star Wars fans in the room? I remember when I was early in youth ministry, I had a student in the youth group that actually thought he was a Jedi. <laughs> I am not joking. Um, he may still to this day. Marcus, if you're listening, um, I'm sorry I made fun of you in front of everybody. Though, uh, once again, as fascinating as this movie is about space and the universe, it is mere fantasy, yet we're still captured by it. This could be J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter. Any uh, Anybody admit that they're a Harry Potter uh, fan in the room? Very fascinating, right? Once again, fascinating, full of imagination, but it is mere fantasy. However, so many people are captured by it. People have always been captured by things that are hard to understand. The idea of the unknown or possibilities outside of our reality are truly fascinating. This might be superhero movies or UFOs or alternate universes or the magic of Disney. I don't know if you know this, but Disney is a fantasy. I hate to burst any bubbles in the room tonight. I've recently been introduced to a book series called Dune. Anybody Dune fans? I've never really met 
any other Dune fans. It's written by a guy named Frank Herbert. I'll tell on Evan. Evan is the reason why I'm interested in Dune at the moment, although I think it just got weird enough that I never want to listen to it again. Anyway, it's not real, any of these things that I have mentioned, but certainly can capture the mind and imagination. Most people can relate to this fascination because whether it was something that I've mentioned or something that I've had, I haven't mentioned, most people have had some movie or some book or some TV series that has captured their attention. You with me? What's most fascinating about the book of Revelation is that it's filled with just as much wonder, just as much mystery, maybe even more, yet the entire book is absolute truth. You with me? This is not a fantasy that was written by some crafty author. This is not some amusement part that's been put together to suck out all of our money and make our children happy. No, the book of Revelation is real. These descriptions and explanations aren't coming from some creative author with a big imagination. No, this book comes directly from Jesus himself. I love what Herschel Hobbes writes about opening up the letter of Revelation. He says, as we open this book, we do so with a sense of awe. Like Moses before the burning bush, we feel that we should take off our shoes. For indeed, we stand on holy ground. A sense of expectancy overwhelms us. Something tremendous is about to happen. As we, as we read with holy imagination, a mighty pageant of divine truth unfolds before our eyes. We see scene after scene as the drama of revelation is unfolded. As a matter of fact, Herschel Hobbes calls this book the cosmic drama. However, this fascination with so many other things in Hollywood, has made the book of Revelation more about the mystery and less about the message. It's made the book more about the mystery and less about the message. It is a revelation which belongs to Christ. God gave it to him and which is revealed by him to the readers. He is the revealer as well as the one revealed in the book. In the book, Jesus is unveiled and disclosed to human view. Now, friends, listen to me. I don't want our time in this book to get sidetracked by speculation or superstition. This isn't the revelation of John. This isn't the book of revelations, by the way. This is the book of revelation, and it's from Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, when Christ came to the earth the first time, he was clothed in flesh. It wasn't except for a very small group of people who got to see him transfigured into who he really was. It was only a few that got to see his deity shining forth from within. But in the revelation, he is seen as he is. Along with the glorious unveiling of his person, the book also unveils his will and his ultimate triumph over all his foes. And with it, the triumph of all who are his. This is why I thought it would be appropriate to begin our journey journey in Revelation together with this title, Victory in Jesus. Now listen to me, with this in mind, I want us to look at Revelation 1 and I want us to put down a proper foundation for reading this particular book by asking a few questions tonight. Let's ask them together. Here's the first one. You might have guessed it. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Well, it was that guy right there. See him? It was that guy that wrote it. At least that's what Google told me. It was him right there. If you are 
in Revelation chapter 1, in the very first verses, here is what John writes. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, it's very clear from the beginning of this book that Jesus is the one with the revelation that John will write. Also, God gave him this revelation. So, just to be clear, without over-spiritualizing it, God gave this revelation to Jesus. It's not John's. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not for us to speculate about. It is Jesus's revelation. However, what we're really asking is who was the person that wrote down the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, we discover that in the very first verses of the book. We discover it was written down by a guy named John. Now, there have been different Johns mentioned as the author of this book. Let me give you a few of them. The first speculation is John Mark. Why would he be assumed to be the writer of the book? Well, in case you didn't know, this particular John served alongside of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. You might remember the dispute that Paul and Barnabas got into in the book of Acts when Paul didn't want to bring John Mark with them, and Barnabas did. As a matter of fact, it's when they parted ways. This is John Mark. He is traditionally viewed as the writer of the gospel of Mark. So he has also written other books of the New Testament. So some think it could be John Mark. Others think it's an unknown John. In other words, oftentimes apocalyptic writings were written by authors who used a random or fake name. Therefore, it could be that the writer referred to himself as John, a very popular name, but really wasn't John. He didn't want to be known who he was, and so he was an unknown John. The other option is this. It is the apostle John. I particularly hold to the traditional view that the Apostle John is the author of Revelation. There's a lot of speculation on who wrote it. This is where I find myself. Now, for me personally, this seems to be undeniably the case with what is recorded in Revelation chapter 1 verse 2. When the author claims, as we've already read, to have bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, this would make sense that it would have been one of the original 12 disciples. Also, the use of the phrase, the word of God, as a description of Jesus was unique to the apostle John. You say, Danny, how do we know that? Because he uses it in the gospel of John written by the apostle John. So it's fair to us agree, to agree, that the author is that wide-eyed fisherman who dropped his nets to follow Jesus. He witnessed things that not even all the disciples were able to witness. He heard the witness of John the Baptist when he was told to follow Jesus instead of the Baptist himself. He was there when Jesus performed his first miracle by turning water into wine. He saw Jesus cleanse the temple. He very likely witnessed the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, along with Peter and James, James being John's brother. John saw the resurrection of a young girl from the dead. He was with Peter and James when Jesus was transfigured before them, where they got to see the deity of Christ. He was nicknamed by Jesus, along with his brother, as the sons of of thunder, which is apparently why the strong language is used throughout the book of Revelation. You can sense his very personality. 
It was also Peter, James, and John that Jesus asked to stay awake and pray with him as he prayed before he would die on the cross. He witnessed the trial, the beatings, the crucifixion, even the death of Jesus. He was also given the task of caring for Mary, Jesus's mother. He was also the first of the disciples to the tomb after Jesus's resurrection. Now, he wasn't the first to walk into the empty tomb, but he was the first to arrive, and he was the first to believe that Jesus was alive as he said he would be. Now, there are various reasons to question the authorship of the Apostle John, but none of them are greater than the reason to believe that he is the author. So who wrote the book of Revelation? The Apostle John. Let's move on to the next question. Number two, when was the book of Revelation written? We know who wrote it, John the Apostle. When was it written? Well, there are two popular times that are suggested for the writing of this letter. Now, the reason why these two are the most popular times, and one of them is accurate, is because of the amount of persecution that was taking place when Revelation was written. Because of that, there are only two emperors in the history of Rome who had the worst campaigns of persecution against Christians. The first one you are probably more familiar with. This would be during the reign of Nero. By the way, what a strapping young fellow. Uh, Nero was. I don't know if that's actually him. That's just what Google showed me, so I thought it'd be funny. So don't uh, take pictures of this and show anybody who actually knows something about uh, these things, because I don't, but maybe someone does. So just take my word for it. Nero, there he is. Could have been during his reign. That's AD 54 uh, through 68, but it's probably most likely during the reign of Domitian or Domitian. I don't really know how to say his name. I'm not Roman, so I'm not sure. Now, the reason why it's one of these, as I said, is because of the amount of persecution that was taking place during the reign of both of these emperors. Nero was the first to persecute Christians, believed to be the emperor who killed the apostle Paul, martyred him. However, his persecution was considered smaller, or at least more localized, not as widespread as was that of Domitian, whose persecution of the church was extremely widespread. Now, many early Christian writers agree that John was writing this letter during Domitian's reign. There are several church fathers. I could list them off, but it doesn't matter. Now, this would suggest that the book was written around AD 95 or 96. Now, why is this significant? It's just interesting, so I thought you would want to know. But it does make the book of Revelation one of the last books of the New Testament written, if not the actual last book. Now, I don't know if you know this, but when you're looking through the New Testament, the books of the Bible are not in chronological order. So just because Matthew came before Mark doesn't mean that Matthew was written before Mark. That's the order of the canon. Lots of reasons why they did that. So because Revelation is about the end of the world and it's at the end of the New Testament doesn't mean it had to be written last. However... It probably was. All right, we'll move on from that because I got to hurry up. I got a big one at the end. It's going to take us forever. So let's hurry and get there. All right, number three. Where was the book of Revelation written? Well, this one is extremely easy. We find it in Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I, John, there he is, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. There it is. In case y'all are wondering what Patmos looks like. Actually, I don't 
really know that's a church in Patmos somewhere, uh, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John lets us know exactly where he is and where he's writing from. Now, this particular time when John's writing this letter, he is exiled to Patmos. Why? Because of his faith in Jesus. He's experiencing persecution just like the rest of the church. Now, what's interesting is that after nearly 60 years of preaching and teaching, primarily in Asia Minor, which if geographically you need to know where that is, that's modern day Turkey. He does most of his ministry around the city of Ephesus for about 60 years. He was at whatever age at that time, 70 or 80, he recounted his own memories of Christ's earthly ministry. We have this documented. It's called the Gospel of John. Then after that, thought to be in his 90s, almost at the end of his life, John writes, Revelation. The island of Patmos was in the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles from Eth- about 40 miles from Ephesus. It's a small island. It's about 10 miles long and five miles wide. That is where John is when he's writing this letter. Number four, what was written in the book of Revelation? All right, so we got the we got the who, right? We got the when, we got the where, what, Danny, is written in the book of Revelation? Well, we know that would take us all night if we actually went through everything, so let me give you a small piece. This book is what's called commonly apocalyptic writing. You've probably heard that word before. Hobbes says this about it. He says, this was a form of writing which was used by the Jews to communicate with one another in time of trouble. I find this to be interesting. It's not just an idea about the end times as we think about the word apocalypse. It really means more of a revealing. Really has to do a lot more with encouragement during times of trouble. Now there are other books in the Bible that are also apocalyptic in their nature and in their writing. These are Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, just to mention a few. Apocalyptic writings were used to encourage the Jewish people and to do this, the writers used symbolic language, which was a sort of code language for those on the outside. The code was known to the Jews, but was a mystery to their enemies and an author could write with no fear. So If you wanted to get out a message that you didn't want other people to know about, you could do it in symbolic language through apocalyptic writing. Now, this made a lot of sense at the time. Why? Well, because of the hostility toward Christians, because of the persecution that was happening during the reign of Domitian. Had John wrote in language, the enemies of Jesus could understand Christians and John would have suffered even more. As a matter of fact, had he wrote plainly, we probably would not have this book today. However, even when the Romans would read what John wrote in Revelation, they probably thought he was crazy and thought nothing about his words. Now, Keep that in mind. Keep that type of crazy symbolism in mind when you try to make something in this book say something that it doesn't, all right? Such as the locust coming up from Hades is really a helicopter from China. You can try your best to do that, but I would say stay away from the danger of those types of speculations. The symbolism was meant to confuse those outside the church. It was not meant to confuse you. You with me? 
Now, according to Ray Summers, this is one of the most interesting things about what's written in the book of Revelation. In his book, it's called Worthy is the Lamb, if you're ever interested in going a little bit deeper into a study of Revelation. There are several ways that he talks about how people interpret this particular book. Now, throughout history, there have been several schools of thought. I want to give them to you, and I gave you some little, little information about it on your uh, outline in case you wanted to take that and do some research on your own. The first school of thought is called the futurist school of thought. Now this interpretation regards the book as dealing with events that are connected to future events, such as the end of the world. This would make the book a collection of unfulfilled prophecies. Now this type of school thinks that nothing in the book has to do with the past or the present. It all has to do with future events that are yet to unfold. The second school of thought is called the continuous historical school. Now, this interpretation deals with symbolic prophecy of the future history of the church. Their future history, by the way, not necessarily just ours. Specifically, those who hold this interpretation believe the Roman Catholic Church is the beast that's written about in the book, which has turned away from true Christianity. Now, listen, I am not against the Roman Catholic Church, but this is a thought that is out there, a school of understanding what is written in Revelation. Let me show you the third one. This is the philosophy of history school. This interpretation disregards any historical background of the book. It deals with principles by which God deals with all men through the ages. So this isn't about Rome. This isn't about the churches uh, in Asia Minor. This isn't about future events. It's all philosophical messages to help us better live out our faith in Jesus. In other words, none of it is real. That is the philosophy of history school. Let me show you the fourth one. Fourth one. This is called the Preterist School. This interpretation regards the book as having implications for the days that the church uh, was existing in when John wrote the book of Revelation. Now, what this means is what has taken place under the Roman Empire back in A.D. 96 is what the book was writing about. So when you read about future events, it was future events within the rule of the Roman Empire. Now, there are a few who are preterist school who also think of a few toward the end of Revelation as being prophecies that will happen, but mostly they believe it happened during the reign of the Roman Empire. Now this view is specifically held by many Roman Catholics as a way to combat those who are of the school of uh, continuous historical interpretation. So just an interesting side note there. There's one more. Let me share it with you. It's called the historical background school. This interpretation regards the book as meaningful to the original audience as a way to encourage them during persecution. However, those who hold to this school of thought also believe the book has implications for those today and for the future. Like a parable, it's intended to teach one central thought. The symbolic meaning was to hide the original intent from the enemies of the church, not to be too specific with every detail. This is what is in the book of Revelation. Every person who studies the book falls into one of these categories. Now, if I could make it more simple for you, it would be like this. You either believe it was about the past, written for the church under the Roman Empire. You believe it's all philosophical, and you just think it has to do with whatever you think of in life. 
you think it has to do with something in the future that hasn't happened yet, or you think it has some kind of combination of multiple. It deals with the past, it deals with the present, it deals with the future. Now, in my opinion, and also according to the Bible in Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, I believe John gives us a clear understanding of what was written in the book of Revelation. If you're open to chapter 1, jump to verse 19. Here's what John wrote. Write therefore, you ready? The things that you have seen, he's talking about the past. Those that are, he's talking about the present. And those that are to take place after this, he's talking about the future. Now clearly the past is represented as John reminds us of Jesus and what he's done. If you don't believe me, you can read in chapter 1 verses 4 through 8 and you will discover a picture of what Jesus has done. Clearly the present is represented because Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which we read yesterday and today, at least if you're on the same schedule as me, are addressed to churches of the day in which John was writing. So guess what? For John, it had to do with the past. It had to do with the present. But clearly, clearly, the future is represented because the book is filled with events yet to come. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Jesus will return. Hallelujah. Right? So what was written in the book of Revelation? Well, things from the past, things from the present, things yet to come. All right, let's get to question number five. I know you think we're almost done. And I wish we were. Let's ask the question, why was the book of Revelation written, right? We got the who, we got the when, we got the, uh, the, the, the where, we got the what. Let's look at the why. Are you ready? We're going to run through this quickly. Here would be the three reasons why I would tell you the book of Revelation is written. Here are the three things that I would tell you to be the lenses by which you study this book. Why? Here's the first one. It was written for enlightenment. It was written for enlightenment. Look back at Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. But look at what he says. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. God wants to show. He wants to enlighten those who follow him. The confusing and hard to read language of Revelation wasn't to confuse us. It wasn't to hinder us from understanding. It was written to conceal the message from those who would seek to destroy it. However, to those who follow Jesus, he wants to enlighten. I love what James Moffat wrote. He says, the con of the apocalypse, in other words, the content of Revelation, is not merely prediction. No, here's what it is. Moral counsel and religious instruction are the primary burden of its pages. You say, Danny, should I read Revelation as it pertains to me and what Jesus wants to reveal in my life? Yes, it is written for enlightenment. As a matter of fact, he uses the phrase, he made it known. 
What's interesting about this phrase is that the word made it known means to show in signs and symbols. Now we know this to be true from the apocalyptic nature of the writing. So here's what I would encourage you to do. Never make the false assumption that because of the symbolic nature of the writing, that God wants to hide something or that the Bible isn't literally true. Let me repeat that. It's written in symbolic nature. It is apocalyptic writing. So when you read something and you go, Danny, so it's not literally this? No, it's a symbol that literally means something. Don't take that and now go where the Bible must not be true. No, 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 listen to this. It is literally true in what it means. One does not say that the Lamb of God actually has four feet and a tail, a body covered with wool, and goes about saying, bah. No. The literal truth lies in what is symbolized. To take every symbol in Revelation absolutely literally, as some define that word, is absurd. The literal truth lies in the meaning of the symbol. Friends, don't get lost in the symbol. Don't get lost in the mystery to the point that you miss the message. Please don't lose sight of who it is. Who it is that's being revealed. In this book, these symbols and signs were written to seven churches. It was in that context that Jesus wanted to enlighten his followers. Now, I don't have time to read everything here, but if you were to read in verses 4 through 11, here's what you would discover. You would discover that John was writing this to seven churches that are in Asia. As a matter of fact, he writes some beautiful things about God the Father, beautiful things about God the Son, beautiful things about God the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 11 that he is to send this book to seven churches. Here they are. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, at Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is who the letter is written to. Now, Asia refers to churches located in Western Asia Minor. We've already noticed uh, noted that this is modern-day Turkey. This is where the majority of John's ministry took place. Now, it's noted that these seven churches were located on the postal route of the province. They said, Danny, why is that significant? Because likely this would suggest that the letters were also read to surrounding churches with these churches being the easiest for distribution. Most people believe Troas, Colossae, Heropolis, others were also recipients of the book of Revelation. Now the use of the word seven is used all throughout the book. It's used a lot in Revelation chapter one. It is simply a symbol for perfection. You probably know this. The churches seem to be a literal seven churches. But the seven spirits that are mentioned in Revelation chapter one who are before his throne represent the Holy Spirit. The use of the word seven in this case would not be seven spirits, but rather a representation of the perfect spirit of God who will bring enlightenment to the church. It could also be, if you want more literal interpretation, that John is reflecting on the perfect qualities and nature of the Holy Spirit. You say, Danny, what do you mean? When Isaiah chapter 11, uh, the prophet mentions seven qualities of the Holy Spirit. I don't think there's a coincidence that you would use scripture to interpret scripture. Well, what does Isaiah say? He says the spirit is of the Lord. He says it's a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, 
knowledge, fear of the Lord. Those are the seven qualities mentioned, highlighting the seven spirits, which is really one reflecting the perfection that is the Holy Spirit. In essence, John is communicating that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit bring perfect grace and peace to the church. He is bringing perfect enlightenment, perfect grace and peace. I wish we had a little bit more time there, but we don't. So, why is it written? It's written for enlightenment. Let me show you this one. It's also written for encouragement. Please don't miss the encouragement behind the book of Revelation. Go back to verse 1. You're like, Danny, we haven't moved past verse 1. I know. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. I want to show you a couple things about this encouragement that are significant. Why? Well, we have encouragement because of persecution. This is huge for the churches that John is writing to in Revelation. As a matter of fact, the word soon might be better translated as certainly. Christians throughout all times have lived with expectancy of the return of Jesus. We might have thought that he should have come back by now. What any they said in the early church that Jesus was coming back. What any John said he was coming back when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Any early church fathers said Jesus is almost here. My grandma used to say Jesus is returning any day. If it's going to be soon, why hasn't happened? Why hasn't it happened yet? Well, the simple answer is that our time is not like God's time. As a matter of fact, when he uses the word soon, it doesn't have to mean soon like we think of soon. Time for us is limited, but God is outside of time. So think about it as Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, though it may not be soon like we think about it, you know what it will be? certain. It's certainly going to happen. They needed to be encouraged that the persecution that they were experiencing at the hands of a wicked emperor would not last much longer. In fact, it could be that John wasn't speaking as much about the return of Jesus or even the end times as much as he was talking about the end of persecution under the reign of Domitian. You say, what do you mean? John wrote this, this book probably in A.D. 95. You know what happened in A.D. 96? Shortly after this book was written, that emperor died. And let me tell you something. Persecution never happened again as ruthlessly as it did under his reign. As a matter of fact, as soon as A.D. 313, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, granting individual freedom of religious belief. It could be that John was saying soon, this emperor would be gone, be encouraged, because the persecution will end. Herschel Hobbes writes this. He says, the overall purpose of the revelation was to encourage those who were undergoing persecution. The assurance that Christ had triumphed in the past would give them courage in the present and the future. Listen to this. The whole point is that the emperor or any other evil power would not defeat Christ, even if these Christians appeared to be on the losing side for the moment. The ages belonged to their Savior and Lord. Praise God. That's the type of encouragement that we need because of persecution. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 1.9, John tells them that he understands. He is their brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He is exiled. 
Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in the midst of persecution, even as he wrote this book to the church, a partner with them. He needed this encouragement as much as they did. The book was written to enlighten us on the things that are happening around us. It was written for encouragement. Why? Because of persecution. Why else? Because of power. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Let's move on to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. I know, right? Crazy. John writes, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the type of power that will encourage our future. Friends, Jesus has conquered all through his life, death, and resurrection. These are the descriptions of Jesus that will forever guide us into the future. They're found in Psalm chapter 89. As a matter of fact, listen to how one author puts it. He wrote, Revelation is a great drama dealing with the sovereignty of God and of Jesus Christ the Lamb, the judgment of Satan and his forces, and the triumph and glory of Christ and his people. Think about it. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus overcame the power of the devil. He proved his own sovereignty over the evil one. And now, and now he sits in supreme sovereign power upon the throne of the universe. How can we be more encouraged, no matter what we face, than knowing who holds it all together? In fact, through Jesus, we've been freed from our sins by his blood. We've been made a kingdom. Now listen to this, verse 7 and 8. Look at what he goes on to say. Behold... He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Such is the encouragement that we get only from the power of Jesus. Friends, there is no one who will escape his rule and his reign. The Apostle Paul put it like this, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what John's writing about. It doesn't matter. If you're one of the very ones who killed Jesus, one day you will bow. Doesn't matter if you're the demons or even the devil himself, one day you will bow. Here is some encouragement for anyone in any day in any persecution or suffering. It's back in verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever. You say, Danny, what is the power of Jesus? Well, friends, we don't have time to look at all of it, but if you read verses 12 through 16, you get a glimpse as best you can into a picture of what we will never be able to fathom until we see Jesus face to face. You say, what do you mean? He says, look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. You say, Danny, what are those? Well, he tells us in verse 20, those are the seven churches that John is writing to. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. What's he saying? Well, he's describing Jesus in several ways. That is the son of man. He is priestly. He is kingly in nature. It says in verse 
verse 14, hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This is clearly the holiness of Jesus. Some consider this to be symbolic of the internal, eternal nature of Christ. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a picture of the omniscience or the all-knowing nature of Jesus. Look at verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, symbolic for the strength of Jesus, since bronze was the strongest metal known at the time. Voice like the roar of many waters, description of his great power and authority. As a matter of fact, in verse 10 of Revelation 1, it says he had a voice like a trumpet. Now look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. What are the seven stars? Well, these are the angels of the seven churches. Danny, how'd you come up with that? It's in verse 20. I didn't make that up. It's likely that these angels, by the way, are probably the pastors of those seven churches. Right hand refers to the strength that we have in Jesus. In other words, the might of Jesus holds the pastors, holds those churches in his strong right hand. By the way, as I read that, I can't think of any other prayer that I want for my own life than for Jesus to hold me in his strength. He says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, the gospel. It's the truth of scripture to save men from their sins. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. It symbolizes his deity and his majesty. Listen, John does his best to help us picture the might and power of Jesus. We have encouragement because of persecution. We have encouragement because of power. Look at this. We have encouragement because of promise. Let's hurry up. Look at verses 17 and 18. I know it's a lot. Trust me. I was here earlier this week. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Listen to this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen, our response, though it should be just like John's, it should be to fall at his feet as though dead. He promises, Jesus promises us life eternal through his sacrifice. Should we have it? No. But he promises us. Listen, they had nothing to fear. The Roman Empire that now persecutes them also tried to kill Jesus. Guess what, friends? They were unsuccessful then as they are unsuccessful now. As a matter of fact, in every age, earthly powers have sought to destroy the Lord's people and their work, whether by physical violence, intellectualism, bereft of faith, materialism, or any other method that you can think of. Yet the church lives on. Christ lives on. And because he lives, listen, don't miss this, because he lives, we too shall live. That's the promise, right? Listen, Domitian may have had the power to drive them through the door of death into the grave, but Christ had the key by which to open the door and let them out. Can I give you a clearer picture of this? Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the encouragement he still reminds us of today. That's the promise that is still true. You say, Danny, what's the promise? In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Mm. Such a good letter. I don't remember where I'm at. 
Oh, already read you that. Sorry. Last one. It was written for enlightenment. It was written for encouragement. Please read it through those lenses. But don't, it's my favorite, even though we're done. It was written for engagement. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. This may be my favorite part of the entire chapter. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed to read it. I'm glad it didn't end there. And blessed are those who hear. I'm glad it didn't end there. And blessed are those who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Can I point something out to you that's really interesting? The word keep in Revelation 1-3 is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 28 verse 20. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, when he was commissioning his disciples before he ascended to heaven, after he had resurrected from the grave, by the way, after he had taken the keys to death and Hades, he's standing before his people, he's sending them out to change the world forever. And do you remember what he said to them? He said, teaching them to observe, to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That word keep means to observe, to guard. You know what it means? It means to pass on to others. I love what Swindoll writes about the purpose of revelation. Here's what he writes. I don't know if I'll put it somewhere. There it is. The purpose of revelation is to change us, not simply to inform us. Hey, listen, you've been reading this book and are so fascinated by everything that's in there, but it has no impact on your life. You are missing the purpose of the book. It's not simply to inform, but to change. Listen, it wasn't written to confuse, even though I know we get that way. It wasn't written to frighten, even though I know it can. It wasn't written to entertain, although it is full of entertainment. Rather, it was given to believers to read, understand, don't miss it, and apply. This book was written for engagement. So, I pray that we read this book in the proper context. I pray and I challenge you to read it through the lens of what John writes in this first chapter. It is a book of enlightenment. It is a book of encouragement. It is a book of engagement. Friend, the Spirit wants to teach you something. He wants to build you up in faith. The Spirit wants to send you out to the fight. He wants you to be a part of the battle. Recently, my good friend Carrie Boykin, you might know her. That was a joke. Appreciate that. She shared a devotion with me a few weeks ago, and it had an illustration in it that I think was powerful for us to remember as we read the book of Revelation. Here was the, the story. They were, the writer said that the academy in their small town embraces eight-man football. Anybody know anybody plays eight-man football? It's kind of interesting um, concept. The writer says, if you're not familiar with this event, you've missed a treat. It's basically the same as 11-man, I would, I would assume, but it's usually a very high-scoring game. The past week, my brother-in-law kept my sister updated on the game. He read me the post from his phone on the next day. Sounded something like this. 20 to 18, us. 24 to 20, them. 26 to 18, us. 26, 26, tie. 34, 26, them. He said it just kept going and going and going. He said this back and forth scoring continued the entire game. Now here's what he wrote. 
He said, listening to this the next day didn't seem as nerve-wracking as the night before. You want to know why? Because I knew when the buzzer sounded at the end of the game that we had won. You know what he was saying? It was easy to relive all the moments that were giving him many heart attacks, right? Like, ah, what's going to happen? Why? Because he knew the end. Listen to what the writer said. Life is full of happy and sad moments. Sometimes we're on top of the world thinking all is forever okay. Then at another time, it seems that we're losing the battle. Our wins and our losses don't seem to even out. But as a Christian, we put Christ and his mission first and foremost because that is worth the battle. Listen to this. We know that the victory is ours because Christ has already won the battle for us. You say, Danny, what is the book of Revelation about? Friends, it's simple. It's about the victory that we have and will have in Jesus. Matter of fact, listen to this last quote. This is from John Phillips, one of my favorite writers. He said, in this last book of the Bible, we have the full and final answer to the Lord's prayer. You remember this prayer? You find it in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus said, thy kingdom come and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In this book, talking about Revelation, we see God's will being decreed and declared in heaven. Then we see that will being done on earth. The book of Revelation shows that no power in heaven, earth, or hell can frustrate the fulfillment of that plan. Look at this. God's kingdom will come, whether men like it or not. Friends, can I leave you a couple questions? Will you read this book in light of the victory that we have in Jesus? Can I ask you another question? Do you know the victory that we have in Jesus? Listen, this book can be terrifying if you don't know what happens at the end. This book can be terrifying if you're not sure how the score is going to end up. This book can be terrifying if you don't know what team you're on. Friend, listen to me. You can know by giving your life to the one who gives us victory. Listen, it's going to be a fun read. I'm excited for what little bit of time we'll spend in the book. By the way, we're not going through the entire book of Revelation. We don't have the amount of Wednesday nights for that, but we will look at some of it, as we do. Remember, this book is for enlightenment, encouragement. It's for engagement in the gospel, in the battle, in the war that Jesus has put before us.